Welcome to The Lowdown, KMXT's show dedicated to giving you the up-to-date information we have available on the COVID-19 outbreak and how it's impacting life on Kodiak Island. The Lowdown will focus on facts as provided to us by local and state officials. During this edition of the show, we give you access to local physicians and public health experts with information on COVID-19 and recommendations related to it. If you have a question for our guests, please email it to lowdown at kmxt.org or call KMXT at 486-3181. Hi, good morning. Uh, It is another Wednesday, another Doc of the Rock today again with Drs. Mortensen and Theobald. Pretty eventful week, and it would seem just when we seem to think things are looking somewhat optimistic in terms of making some headway against this pandemic, the news that's been coming out nationally and internationally during the past few days has been fairly grim, even with huge new numbers of Americans being vaccinated. Huge surges in in some states, the numbers are, are, are alarming. Bad news in regards to some of the vaccines, as you've probably been hearing all morning, about the AstraZeneca setbacks, um, setbacks and trials. Uh, we here in Kodiak are back up to an intermediate level. The state, I believe, is now in a critical level in Anchorage in, in terms of cases, uh, new spikes in various communities around the state, uh, and particularly there in Anchorage. So let's tackle some of the new issues and address some of the few questions that have already come in for this week. And the good doctors are here again to answer any questions you may have. If you have one, give us a call 486-3181 or shoot me an email lowdown at kmxd.org. We'll try and get it into the uh, line of topics here before the conclusion of the show. Again, Dr. Shanna Theobald from the Kodiak Ambulatory Care Clinic and Dr. Kurt- Curtis Mortensen from the Kodiak Community Health Center are both here uh, on the Zoom with us this morning. Welcome, doctors. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Mike. Uh, it's always a lovely week to be able to talk to you, find people, and figure out you know where we're at. Um, and it's amazing to me. It still is amazing that we've been doing this for a year, and we still have things to talk about. And there's still new things that are happening all the time to talk about, too. Um, uh, first, let, let's talk about the how we're doing locally. Um, we we had these clinics set up over the weekend, um, and they didn't happen. Uh, the vaccine. The vaccine clinic. clinics, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the numbers just, I mean, if it's, you know, less than 100, really, um, it's not, it's more work to go out there and set up for a drive-thru. If we have numbers in the hundreds for vaccinating, then a drive-thru is quick, efficient, makes a lot of sense. But when you're in the tens of people versus hundreds of people, we decided um, it would be easier to just you know, get that all done in clinic. So uh, that is unfortunate, but I, a lot of people seem to not realize that it was open so widely open. Um, so we'll keep saying it's open to everybody ages 16 and up, and there's a lot of availability and now's our chance to get vaccinated. We did have one, one of our cases was some, somebody was waiting to see, you know, how it would go with the vaccine and they got COVID and they became hospitalized from COVID. And so that's kind of, you know, that cautionary tale that we keep saying, we're not just trying to, you know, say it to scare people. It legitimately is a concern that, you know, if we don't get the, if people don't get vaccinated now, they're still at risk for getting COVID, which yeah, get the vaccine. 
I understand the reluctance if we had AstraZeneca in town and there was a legitimate question about whether or not this thing is really affected or whether I'm going to get blood clots or something else is going to happen to me because they haven't done enough testing on it or something like that. You know, but with the vaccines that we have in town, I, I don't see the reason why you, I mean, what is the drawback to not getting, taking the, taking advantage of it and taking the vaccine? It, it's just that scenario you laid out is you wait, you get exposed, you get the virus and you're in the hospital. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that this is the, you know, conversation that um, I'm having um, on my clinic days, probably, you know, five times for, for or, or so, depending on who I'm seeing and if, whether they've been vaccinated or not. But really, I think that almost um, anybody in that 16 and older category, um, based on, again, the effectiveness we've seen the vaccine have and the safety profile, um, the risk of getting the vaccine is less than what the risk would be if, if you don't get it. And I, I think that that's um, sure, the risk of not getting it goes up as we get older. Like there's certainly that's true. Like, so like people that have more risk factors or are older, that the risk, the, the, the scale is even more heavily tipped towards, I see, this is the problem with radio, Mike, is I'm doing all these hand motions and yeah. I can't, no one can see. Me. I'm translating, um, I'm translating. But, uh, um, basically in, in someone with, uh, who's 65 and older or has these medical comorbidities that make them more at risk to get severe COVID. Um, certainly for those folks, the, the scale is heavily tipped towards the risk of the vaccine is much less, much, much less than getting the virus. For people that are younger, and I have this conversation a lot, that that maybe it's not weighted quite as much, but I would still, I would still say based on the safety profiles we have for the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, which are what we have here locally, and then also putting the effectiveness part on it, which is shown to be really, really great. Um, you know, I, I think that it's, it's, um, it really, we should, I really highly encourage my patients to get the vaccine, even if they're young and healthy. And, um, there's, there's an individual point to that. And then there's also the community wide aspect to that. And so there's, I think there's, there's, there's separate questions there. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the vaccines we have in town have shown to be very effective, shown to be very safe. And that's kind of the bottom line. I want to address that younger population real quick, too, because the B117 variant is a game changer. You know, before we were saying our kids are not transmitting this. We've been really fortunate. The kids, it was safe. It was really safe to go to school, relatively speaking, compared to like the flu or, you know, if it was a virus that was more contagious in youth. The B117 is more contagious or is just as contagious in that younger population as it is in adults. And it is the the increase in hospitalizations now in the United States is in that 20 to 39 year old age group. That's where we're seeing the, the biggest kind of surge in illness from um, primarily the B117. So because there is a game changer variant out there, that's one more reason to get that vaccine, you know, don't wait, get the vaccine sooner. Um, and the B117 is now they're saying 70 to 100% more contagious and um, 50% more severe as far as the illness that you get from it. So it really is a significant well, variant. And, and just for clarification, the B117 is the UK variant that has taken over Europe. 
And regardless of all those lockdown protocols that they had in place in Switzerland and France and you in the UK, you know, it still was able to outrun the vaccine protocols that they have. They were doing a great job throughout the UK and like um, like the United States. I mean, we're doing an exceptionally good job of getting people vaccinated. It's just a race between us and whether or not that that variant gets into the population that hasn't been vaccinated or to the people that had already had covid and it's reinfecting them you know which which makes me particularly more worried about the the 351 variant which is overrunning south america right now the brazilian variant and we don't even know anything about this p1 variant that seems to be also running through Brazil. Um, I mean, with as much international travel as we have, you know that, that those things are going to get out. So our, our challenge is to get these vaccines into people's arms before the thing overruns the people who are, you know, deciding they want to wait for a while. Yeah. That's exactly right. And the B117 is, the, the one fortunate thing about it right now is that the vaccines that we have are protective against that variant. So yeah, again, more reason to get the, the vaccine than the, the variant. And, and the variant is outrunning the vaccine. So right now, 30% of all of the cases in the United States are that B117 variant. And you can see it's doubling even faster. It's on a seven, every seven days it's doubling. So we're at, in the United States now, I think we were, I had the numbers last night, um, tens of thousands now have the B117 versus a couple of weeks ago, we were in, you know, just like a few, a handful of thousand people. So um, 30% have B117 and about, I think 13 to 17% of our United States population completely in total is vaccinated. Obviously in Kodiak, we are ahead of that. We're around 40% of our community, 50% um, of the age of 16 plus, but we're, we're still not at that herd immunity. We could still see a pretty significant surge because it's more contagious and it's more, you know, causes people to get sicker here in Kodiak even. And let me uh, add on to that. Like, I think that the big thing about these variants is just like, there's, there's kind of a three, the three pronged, um, you know, part of this one is, is these variants, like the, the fear is like, first of all, are they more contagious? Do they cause more severe disease? And then the third part is, do they outrun our, our immunoprotection from the vaccine? And I think that those are the three things that we worry about. And how do these variants happen? Well, they happen when people are getting actively infected, right? So, um, you know, the more, the more infections that take place, the more chances there are for the virus to mutate and become one of those three things or all three. Um, and so, and that's, that's where, um, you know, I think that we have, we've, we've done a really excellent job as a state and as a community of getting the initial vaccines out, but we are still not at that herd immunity point. And I think that that's the thing, the big thing locally is like, Hey, we've made this great sprint at the start. You know, we've, 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 the last three months have been amazing. The amount of vaccine we've been able to get out, but we're starting to see that slow, you know, slow down what the, you know, people wanting the vaccine. And so, you know, I really encourage, um, you know, anybody listening to the show, or if you know someone's listening to the show, please encourage them to get the vaccine. I, that's really the way for locally, for sure. But, you know, we can talk about global, but locally, I think if we can get, you know, to that herd immunity point, we're going to be in a much better spot. 
Well, Jana, you mentioned that uh, you didn't know whether the word had gotten out enough because um, you know, I, we're, we're limited to social media and to the radio, and I'm not sure what else. Maybe what Dr. Mortensen just suggested, that you grab your friends and try and convince them to go get it or that the, the, the clinic is there. Um, is it a, a matter of us not getting the word out, or are we running into that wall of resistance from people who don't want to get it? I think it's both, definitely. Um, you know, we had a lot of people when we were reaching out to try to make sure we had a batch of vaccines that has, an, they all have an endpoint on them once they're out of the fridge, you know, there's fridge and freezer settings and then room temperature. So depending on which temperature it's at, it, the colder it is, the longer you can use it for. Um, so the when we had a lot left and just needed to get them used up. So we did not want, our biggest goal is we do not want to waste any vaccine. We don't want to compromise Kodiak's ability to get vaccines. And if you, you know, there is that risk if you haven't kind of used your resources well, that they might not, you know, allocate more vaccines in the future. And so, um, but we got them used up and it was a, a lot of that was just a matter of reaching the right population that hadn't heard yet. A lot of it was that, you know, the population that's going to get the vaccine is vaccinated. I reached out to all my friends. Every single one of them is like, I'm vaccinated and all my friends are vaccinated. But I think there's definitely a pool of people that um, probably are resistant. And I don't, the, that population is, I don't know, like the main ways to get the information out there. Well, and it's, it's natural, like when the vaccine first came out, they we did surveys and basically it's kind of like there's 30% that are like, I'm getting it. So there's 30% of the population that's just like, I'm going to get this this vaccine. And there's 30% that are really strongly opposed to it. And then there's 30% that are kind of in the middle. And that's kind of, roughly, that's sort of what, where you're standing. Um, and, um, and so I think as being in a spot where we have about 50% of our eligible folks vaccinated, you know, you're going to have to start working harder probably to convince people that it's the right thing to do because the people that were in the 30% that wanted it enthusiastically, they've pretty much had it by now because they've had an opportunity. And so what I'm finding is that, um, you know, like I said, probably every clinic day I'm going through and I'm having, you know, five or so patients that haven't been vaccinated. And so I'm having this conversation individually with these patients and um, hopefully I'm a trustworthy source of information to them and, 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 and my opinion will, will um, have some effect on their decision-making. That's that, after all, that's why they're coming to me and in, in for their medical care. And, um, you know, I would say like the, the majority of those folks that I talk to when I explain kind of things, majority of them do want to get, will get the vaccine afterwards, but it, it, that's a much slower process than the initial process where you're doing these mass vaccine clinics and stuff like that. I think that we are going to see the process slow for for the reasons of vaccine hesitancy and and and, and things like that. So, anyways, I, I think that it's natural for things to slow down a bit. But um, make no mistake, there's enough vaccine to vaccine vaccinate a lot more people than we are currently. And so we have the supply. If we have people reach out for it, we will make ways to make it happen. Um, it certainly has nothing to do with our workforce not wanting to do the vaccine more. So is this a secondary conversation that you're having? Um, are people coming in specifically to have the talk about the vaccine or are they coming in for regular care and then you notice that they haven't had a vaccine on their chart and say, here, we need to have this conversation too? 
Primarily the, the latter. Uh, primarily people are, I mean, one side effect of the pandemic has been that people are behind on their, uh, you know, preventative care because they haven't been coming in. And so, you know, usually the typical thing is I'm looking through my schedule and I'm seeing like, you know, I have, you know, the patients lined out and um, if uh, we check with them to see if they've had the COVID vaccine and if they haven't, then this is just a, a byproduct of that conversation. Yeah. So how is there a way do you, do you think that we could do better? Do we need a community forum of some variety to uh, get the message out to more people who aren't t- traditionally listening? I'm you know, I'm assuming if somebody's been listening to this program for a while or if they follow social media, they 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 know what the benefits are and what's available. But uh, I mean, are you seeing patients that come in that uh, haven't really even been exposed to the fact that the, this is available to them and it's something that they ought to do? We had some people question, asking, like, oh, if, you know, can my 16-year-old get it? If so, where? I had, we had a lot of parents asking if their, you know, 16, you know, their teenagers, older teenagers could get it. So that was clear to me that not everyone has received all the information. I mean, I think what KMX is doing is excellent, and I'm so glad we have media that's really, you know, making sure those public messages get out. Um, I think, honestly, Friends of Kodiak was one of the biggest places where we got, the reason why we got all those vaccines used up was because people saw that message on Friends of Kodiak. And so as, and but I also, you know, social media has the other side, the flip side, where people are also seeing a lot of misinformation about the vaccine, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but I think using those platforms is important, even though they're not, you know, the formal kind of traditional platforms of getting information out, but that's where you reach a really broad Kodiak or community audience. Well, I have a question from a listener about the variants. Uh, person was, uh, tested, uh, I was, I was told people in Kodiak have tested positive for variant strains of COVID. Are there documented cases of variants in Kodiak? When she was tested, uh, last, a couple of days ago, she was told that the test wouldn't detect any known variant strains. How do you know if cases here in Kodiak are increasing, uh, with variants? Yeah, so um, it's uh, our current setup. So there is limited capacity in state to 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 do these tests for um, for variants, um, and our country as a whole has not been very good at testing for variants. Uh, I think we're getting better, but um, but in general, uh, hasn't been very good at, at. It's been either you're positive for COVID or not, and and and. There hasn't been much in the way of variant testing in our country compared to some others. Um, I will say that, like um, historically, um, when the pandemic was kind of in its early stages, like around this time last year, we were starting to just starting to get up on testing. And uh, when we initially started testing, we were sending out um, one swab to the state, and one swab was was being run locally, and and that was to get if there was a positive, it was to get that there see if there was. Um, you know, any sort of to do some of the gene sequencing on that. Um, we stopped doing that early summer um, last year uh, just because of the sheer volume and um, use, using basically we we're using two swabs on every patient that came in. 
and um, you know, gold streaking samples up to the state and just the, the sheer volume of testing was too much to continue doing that on. So at least as far as our clinic goes, I, and I can't speak for Chan's clinic or, or for Tana, but uh, for our clinic, we, um, we have a policy that if, if you're symptomatic, we do a same day test on an, uh, Abbott, our Abbott device, which is just run locally. And there is no confirmatory testing that gets sent out to anywhere else. That's just to be treated positive as a positive. Um, and then if you're asymptomatic, we send it out to a, a lab called Quest. And uh, Quest is it's a PCR test, so that's a um, um, a much more uh, uh, more technologically advanced test. And um, that I don't know. And we were talking about this before the show. I'm not sure Quest does. If it's a positive, do they do? sequencing for variants. I don't know. I have not seen that on a lab result that they will like get back to us to say, yeah, this is a variant of concern. Um, so the, the long and short story is I don't think we really have data from our local community on variants. Would it make any difference to an individual whether or not they got COVID A, B, or C? I mean, as far as, you know, if you know knew you got exposed to the Brazilian variant, for instance, and and are, are, would you would you treat the person any different? You know, and I mean, what what difference does it make logistically for even knowing that these things are around? I mean, if 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 there is nothing that we can do other than what we've already done, wash your hands, keep your distance, wear a mask. Uh, what value does it have to us other than to make us more hyper alert that these variants are around and they're going to spread faster? Sorry, I was a little slow on that stick there. Um, I mean, I think that you're right from the standpoint of um, for that, for the actual care of that individual patient, it probably doesn't make any difference, but for the purposes of surveillance and um, kind of more public health, related measures, I think it, it does make a significant difference to do the surveillance. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of doing that surveillance. I just think that Kodiak has um, some barriers to doing that that other places don't. Um, you know, I have a friend that I talked to that's, that works at a lab up in Anchorage, and their lab is directly across the street from the state lab. And so, you know, they do a test on somebody and it's really easy. They just walk out across the street and they have them run it, you know, uh, a secondary sample to see, uh, to do any additional testing on it. And, um, you know, in Kodiak, we're, we're looking at then, you know, gold streaking samples and not only just the ones that are positive, but gold streaking like all samples because, you know, we don't always know what the, what the results going to be before they leave us. So, um, I think that, um, you're you're right from the standpoint of of uh, if somebody has a positive COVID test, there is no specific treatment for the variants that is different than it is for the original virus. Um, but I think for surveillance, public health, I think it is valuable information. Um, and I just think we're in a kind of a little bit of a tough spot to to get that information back to us. Well, some of the troubling information that I've seen is is reports about how how much more children are being affected by the variants than the old version. Is, is that something that your research has led you to believe is occurring and that makes it more concerning to you? 
Yes. So Dr. Osterholm addressed this and um, basically the new variants, well, at least the B117, that's the primary, that's the dominant one right now in the United States, um, is much more uh, transmissible in children than the, the wild type, the variants, or the kind of original virus that we had been seeing. Um, and then also uh, for a lot of the surges in the lower 48 were spread by children. So they could link kind of the the original source of a community outbreak back to a daycare center, sports activities in schools. And um, I think, you know, as we see schools have gotten, have kind of come back together after spring break, there's a good chance that that's when we will see the surge. So definitely there's a, there's a change, a game changer. We weren't seeing that. We weren't seeing that the kids were like Dr. Jones and, and um, Dr. Mortensen had talked about it a lot in prior episodes. It was really interesting. Kids just didn't seem to be kind of the spreaders that they normally can be of, let's say, the flu, for example. Um, I just, I, Quest can send, just to kind of backtrack to your original question about genotyping here, Quest can send samples to the Fairbanks lab um, for genotyping, but we don't know exactly. I think we sh uh, one question that I'll look into this week is which samples are being test sent to the lab and if we know specifically of Kodiak specific examples or I mean samples, sorry. So we just assumed because of the travel that comes through here that when we had spikes back in December and in, in January that the one ver the variants were here. We just sort of assumed that because they they have been confirmed in Alaska. Yeah, January is when we really saw the first couple of variants pop up in Anchorage. So I'm not sure that the variant really moved through Alaska. If the December spike was our wild type or due to some other variant, I I'm not sure. So if if kids become now with variants, if kids become more of a more of a spreader, I mean, are they are we seeing more kids get the disease, or more disease come out of being infected by a child, or both? Both is what they're seeing. Yeah. Well. That's not particularly happy news. Um, it, it, I, I, I did see a report come out of Israel, though, where they were talking about having vaccinated the healthcare population in Israel, and um, the they they found that vaccinating adults helped protect the kids in the population. I mean, the numbers were pretty astronomical of how. Um, how how little spread occurred because they were successful in in vaccinating the whole medical population. Yeah, Israel has had astounding success. Um, I don't remember the exact percentage, but I think it's somewhere in the ninety ninetieth percentile. Do you remember, Dr. Martinson, that um, Israel has had an incredible uptake of the vaccine? Just everybody that can get it is getting it. And that's, that is exactly what needs to happen from a public health perspective to protect our, our youth. Hmm. Well, let's go into the touchy topic then of passports. Um, 
I think this kind of almost hand in hand with um, whether or not you're going to get a vaccine in the first place. If you choose to get a vaccine, um, it seems to me like you would proudly show the card and show people that you had it. And um, is this, do you see a future for us having to prove every year that we're, we've been vaccinated? To be able, I mean, other countries are going to require us to be able to show it. But do you want to dabble into the discussion about whether or not vaccine passports are actually something that's beneficial? I mean, I, I don't want to, um, I probably don't want to get into any sort of public policy discussion on it. Um, <laughs> I think that could get pretty, pretty sticky. And I, I, I can totally, um, understand some of the concerns with that um, as well. But um, I mean, we're struggling with this just locally, just in our clinics, you know, like trying to set policies for travel for both staff. And then also thinking about like, for the past year, we've had um, patients, if, if, if somebody's traveled out of state, that's, you know, if, if they're traveling in from out of state, we ideally, if it's not an urgent type visit that would require them to um, you know, be seen immediately. We've been trying to defer those for two weeks until after they get back from travel. Like that's kind of become our internal policy towards patients coming in. And so now it's like, okay, well, if somebody's vaccinated, do we let them in? You know, do we stop doing that? And so it's it's a little bit of a moving target right now. I think that um, certainly, again, kind of coming back to the effectiveness of the vaccines, um, you know, I can see the medical merit <laughs> of of doing something like this because I think that it it um, because the vaccines are so effective, I, I can see using that as as like a okay, we have a policy for patients and staff members that are going on uh, these trips out of state. Like you know, they can come back to work sooner or without a quarantine period if they've had the vaccine. Um, but it's it's tricky. Um, there's no doubt we're working through that. Like I said, even as a local clinic, and so. Uh, how much trickier is that to to sort of be on kind of either a national or statewide level? Um, I, I think that there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's going to be a lot of judgments going to have to be made there. I don't think a passport's going to be required to travel. I mean, I, I could be wrong, but as of now, it's not. Just like a vaccine isn't required. But definitely, if you get the vaccine, um, the CDC did just update their travel guidelines um, April Friday, April 2nd, right after our last show to say that fully vaccinated people, so two weeks after that, their last dose, so whether it's a one dose or two dose um, vaccine, can now travel in the US. They don't need to test and they can skip the quarantine when they return. They're not recommending that people travel at this point. In fact, they're still recommending to hold off on travel unless it's absolutely essential just because there is the B117 out there, um, but they are considered low risk. And so with that, I think you want to have your card on you and just show, hey, I have been vaccinated. I mean, we do, we give everybody a card just for proof of vaccination for their job or what, wherever it is kind of important to just show that you have that protection. But um, I doubt there'll be, I mean, I could be wrong, but I doubt that there'll be a, like, you can't travel unless you have a passport kind of mandate. I don't think that's how America has ever really worked. But um, yeah, it is nice to know, or nice to be able to show that proof when you do get the vaccine. Well, I'm, I'm thinking from the other side, uh, the Canadians won't let us, let us through the border unless you have one of these rare exceptions right now. You can't get into half places in the world as it is now. Um, yeah, so, those countries are 
taking this a lot more seriously and, and yeah, exactly, are going to want to protect their citizens from someone else bringing it in and causing, you know, increased mortality and morbidity. So it makes sense. Well, then they're, they're think, even more. Yeah, yeah. And I think I bring into that, like, um, and Dr. Ulster Tom mentioned this on his last podcast is like, so even if we're like in the US, we are starting to experience a surge and we don't want to downplay that. But like other places in the world, this is kind of one of the worst. This is basically the worldwide. We're looking at kind of this as being one of the biggest surge times um, that we've had. And so I think being cognizant, I think when we're in our own little bubble here in Kodiak and even in the United States, we tend to not have our, our too much awareness sometimes of, of other places in the world. But there are many places in the world that are really, really, really struggling right now with um, surges. And um, and so, you know, I think that when it comes to international travel, I'm, I'm sure that there's going to be some restrictions on this for, for a while um, related to stuff like this. Well, that was interesting that the CDC rolled back those uh, travel requirements at that time because they were still telling people that, it, you know, don't travel. And then you hear about the, the Minnesota nurse yesterday who has gone to Mexico and actually she'd been double vaccinated back in January, I think, and uh, contracted COVID in Mexico and has been quarantined for 18 days. So you you think, man, you know, these things work. If I have it, I'm not going to get this disease. And the next thing you know, even with the vaccine, it's still you still might be in that little tiny percentage of people who are still going to be unfortunate enough to get it. So that yeah, makes it. there's a small percentage of people. I do want to encourage people to still get your vaccine because it is a very small percentage of the people that are getting you know, COVID after they've been fully vaccinated and it, and it decreases the severity of the illness and risk for hospitalization. So definitely still get it, but I agree. And I think, I mean, part of it too is um, encouraging people to get that vaccine because it really is how we're going to try to move past this pandemic back to normal, quote unquote, we've talked about this, the new normal for a while is we'll see what that looks like, but as far as, you know, just being able to move freely and gather together again, the vaccine is huge in that. Yeah, and I think that um, it comes back to, <laughs> I had a colleague that um, was a public health um, expert and I was talking to him sometime last summer, I think, and he said that the thing about like really, really great public health measures is that no one even knows they're going on because no one, like, so, you know, um, you think about um, they're, they're boring, basically. If somebody does a really good job with public health, then then life is boring, because there isn't. And so um, I think that that's the the thing you hear about a story like this this gal that gets sick even though she's been vaccinated, and that makes all the the news, you know. But you don't think about all the people that haven't gotten sick because they've gotten the vaccine, which is way way you know if you if you just look at statistics, is way 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 more. Um, but that doesn't get any press, right? Because um, it, it doesn't make a good story. Um, so anyways, just, just again, a, a plug for vaccines is, is, is that um, people tend to look at like what is assured versus what is not assured. And in, in the short term, people think I'm going to, I'm going to get a shot. That's going to be uncomfortable. I might have some side effects for the next day. They don't think about the benefit, the long-term benefit of it. And so just another plug for the vaccine. What's your take on these uh, uh, incentive programs to get people to get vaccinated? Like, I know the Chinese are giving out ice cream cones. 
I heard a story yesterday about uh, a lottery, uh, you know, that there were prizes being given so that, you know, if you went and got a shot, you, you'd be entered into a lottery. Uh, I know there are places in the world where they're saying you can't get into a national park or you can't get into a, a, a mosque unless you can show that you've got the card. Um, do you think that might work at the something like that's necessary to move our population towards more vaccinations? I think, I think uh, just general human behavior, I think that those things would probably work. Um, you might have people coming in and trying to get in third and fourth vaccine doses just to get in that lottery a few extra times, maybe. <laughs> we check for that though, right? I'm not, I'm not going to encourage that by the way, but yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, for let's talk a little bit about, you know, kids and vaccinations and uh, the setbacks that have just happened. I mean, all the AstraZeneca is on hold now for kid trials. I mean, there was a, a lot of optimism that we would have vaccines available to kids in September, maybe. That doesn't look like it's going to happen now. Not with AstraZeneca. Pfizer's on track to, I think um, they have studied 2,200 and some kids, and one, it's 100% effective as far as none of those kids that got vaccinated have gotten COVID, whereas 18 in the um, placebo arm did get COVID. So, uh, and also very safe. So all the data we have so far, or they have so far, is showing that it's very safe. There's no significant side effects, no problems for kids. Um, so that's really encouraging. And I think Moderna is on a similar track. Unfortunately, AstraZeneca is just taking hit after hit. And um, yeah, some of them have been really just unfortunate things that like we've talked about with the blood clots, that it seems that it's at the rate that happens at the general population. However, there's not enough information at this point. Um, they really need to have more investigation and research done before they continue with children. So, yeah, Astra, it is unfortunate because AstraZeneca was going to be a big help to get the rest of the world. You know, we need the rest of the world vaccinated. We need to all get vaccinated together so that these new variants don't spin out that, are, like Dr. Martin said, said earlier, that aren't going to resist our vaccines. At some point, you know, a new variant, a kind of super variant could emerge and then we're in trouble even if we did get vaccinated. So this is a global health issue that is going to directly impact the United States. It's not just, you know, once the U.S. gets vaccinated, we're safe. Unfortunately, and fortunately, we are all really in this together. Um, but yeah, so there is still good news about pediatric vaccines, but yeah, not from AstraZeneca, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, we're on the Pfizer Moderna program here, it seems, and the Johnson & Johnson, which I haven't seen. Any, are there Johnson & Johnson trials being done on kids? I feel like almost certainly there are, but I, I'm not aware of any either. But I, I, I'm, I would be shocked if they weren't. Yeah, well, there does seem to be a mad scramble. I mean, we we talk about the primary ones because they're the ones that are available to us, but it seems like there's a new vaccine in trials like every day. Um, some yeah. some I just variety. looked it up. They're in phase 2A clinical trials for ages 12 to 17. Um, and the data that I quoted just before from Pfizer, they, that was a phase 3 um, pediatric clinical study that that data came out of. So, yeah, everyone's working on it. So... We're into this 
uh, vaccine clinic thing for the indeterminate future then? I mean, it looks seems like we get through the adult batch and, and then we're still trying to, uh, you know, then we're going to have to deal with the summer visitors that are here um, and then another school year in September. Uh, the some of the more troubling news also is the the um, inflammatory disease that's being reported in children now. It, it particularly ch- not only children that have had COVID, but they're seeing these inflammatory diseases in in kids that haven't had COVID officially. Have you read any studies on that? Or you run into any patients that have exhibited those kind of symptoms? My niece had an inflammatory response and a seizure, right? You know, as kind of going off the COVID. But I know there were eight pediatric cases in, as of last week, um, a study from Alaska or a news report, I think it was, said that there were eight cases. And I believe four of them were in the pediatric ICU. Um, so it's a multi-system inflammatory uh, kind of response. And you're, basically what happens is a child will have COVID and a couple of weeks later, they just have this complete, you know, all of their systems are inflamed from this um, immune response. So uh, we don't, it, it is, it can be life-threatening. Kids have died from it. Um, kids get very sick from it. And we don't have all the information, but there are other viruses that cause kind of a similar type of multi-system inflammatory syndrome. I'm not sure if um, the ones that haven't had COVID had either some other virus or had undetected COVID. I don't know. I don't know the information on that question, but it is a very real thing and you don't know which children are going to get it or not. So it, yeah, again, protecting our kids. Dr. Osterholm's last podcast was all about the youth you know they're such a important treasured part of obviously our community and and they bring so much joy and at this point it really we really need to kind of focus on the future they're protected too because this the the future isn't looking so great with these variants so are there are there is there a group of children that are more susceptible to this? Is it pre-existing conditions of some variety that leads to this kind of response, or is it just kind of random? There does seem to be um, a higher a higher number of children getting this. It's called MIS-E, M-I-S-C, um, from, or after COVID, but there are also children that don't seem to have any underlying conditions that that end up getting it as well. So I think a lot remains to be figured out about that. Um, let's talk a little bit about men. You know, men and men's propensity to want to avoid going to see the doctor. Um, I personally, <laughs> I'm not even going to comment on it. Um, they're, um, there does seem to be a national trend of uh, men not being vaccinated as much as the women in the population. Uh, do we see that same sort of uh, statistic locally? We were actually um, 
uh, just looking this up prior to going on air, like statewide, I don't have a statistic from a local perspective from Kodiak, this is just from Kodiak, but statewide, it looks like um, according to the, the statewide dashboard, there's been a, about 126,000 females uh, vaccinated, about 117,000 males. So, you know, um, pretty, I mean, not far off of 50-50, a little bit less on the men. Um, I will say that like just in other areas of medicine, uh, men are much, much less likely to engage uh, with the medical system. Um, so like when it comes to cancer screening rates and immunization rates just as a whole, uh, men tend to lag behind uh, females in that way. Um, part of that is education. Um, part of that is, is probably, um, I don't know, like a, a feeling of uh, invincibility. I'm, I'm not sure I could make up a lot of things, but we do know that especially, especially in that age group, like men from ages, you know, 18 through 50, we generally just don't see a lot of men come in and see the doctor. And whereas uh, women during those, those years, a lot of times they're having kids and they're engaging with the medical system frequently uh, during that, during those years. And so um, it's, it's not uh, surprising to me that our male vaccination rates are less um, again, another reason just to provide, continue providing education um, out there. But um, I'm, I'm also, I, I, we'd be remiss not to talk about the disparities in vaccination rates uh, between um, ethnicities as well, though. Um, and, and we know that uh, nationwide and certainly in Alaska, um, uh, we, have seen, we have seen those discrepancies as well among different ethnicities. And those, the reasons for that go far and wide. Um, you know, we know that specifically in the African American population, there's historical precedence for being a part of medical, uh, you know, experiments and things like that, uh, such as the Tuskegee studies. And there's very deep laden distrust in the in in medicine in certain communities. And so, you know, we are. I, I know that in uh, we are working overtime to try and, um, you know, give the information give. Uh, give good information to those populations and provide the education we need to. But um, yeah, in, in regards to the male and female discrepancy, I think that this is a, a pretty well-known phenomenon in preventative healthcare in general, not just the COVID vaccine. Well, it'd be really interesting to see now that we, we you had that large percentage of the population who's going to come in and get it, you know, and, and especially the people that are in the more in the in the risk categories, it would wouldn't surprise me if there was ninety percent of the population that came in and got the vaccination right away. But now, as you start to roll things out, are we starting to see more of the twenty to forty year old women get the vaccine as opposed to the twenty to forty year old men? And if you're having a conversation with a patient, you know. Is it a different conversation that you have with a, a man than with a woman to try and convince them that the vaccine is something they ought to do? I don't think so. I, I mean, I think it's it's pretty much the same conversation, uh, you know, the same piece of information you're providing. Um, so I, I, I honestly uh, don't know that my conversation between a man and a woman are, are very much different. Um, the one exception to that is with pregnant women, um, that, that, that creates a little bit more of a, a nuanced discussion. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that, I'm not sure what you think, Shanna, but I, I don't feel like my conversations are really any different depending on gender. It's probably more to do with who actually seeks out that advice or who actually seeks out care to begin with. 
Yeah, I agree. I think men are at slightly higher risk from coronavirus infection from the kind of morbidity and mortality standpoint. At least early on, there were some studies about that it seemed to cause more illness in men. So, you know, if somebody was on the fence, I'm, I would want to make sure I had that really accurate information to provide to provide them. But yeah, it is interesting. I mean, there is a there is a study done men who have men whose wives preventive care live on average five years longer than men who don't. So there is a really, I mean, it is known and there also is a benefit to kind of just getting that preventive care done. Well, but following up on what you said earlier, Curtis, you know, the 20 to 50 year old men aren't going to even come into this in, into your office anyway. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes it even more difficult to reach out to that. If it's a secondary conversation, if most people are coming in and you're having the vaccine conversation because they're coming in for something else and men aren't coming in for the something else to begin with, you're not able to even have the conversation. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that that's probably the, the, the biggest thing is just that um, is just that initially somebody makes it into the medical system. And honestly, to get the vaccine, if you're used to coming to clinic and it's that's like a part of your, of your routine to, to get regular medical care, then scheduling to get an appointment for a vaccine is doesn't seem like a big deal because you're established with a clinic and things like that. And so um if somebody is 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 not one that does that, it, it seems like a much bigger ask because they haven't been established. And which is why I think having these community efforts where you're doing these mass vaccine clinics where it makes it as easy as possible. You don't need an appointment, you don't need to be established. And I would say even for our clinic and I'm, I'm assuming Shannon's is the same way, you don't need to be established with our clinic in order to get the vaccine. We will get we will get you on the schedule for vaccine. We're not requiring you to establish care or have an appointment with a provider or anything like that. Um, so, but um, anyways, I, I think that um, in general it has to do with the fact that people that are tend to be engaged in preventative care are probably also going to be more likely to get the vaccine because they've been used to having that engagement. Um, do you guys have a couple more minutes? Yeah? No? I do, yeah. Um, I wasn't paying attention to my my screen here, so I have a couple of questions that just came in. Um, some people are saying since they've been vaccinated, it's okay to go maskless, but what about the risk of getting sick from the new variants? Yeah, that's a good question. I think Dr. Mortensen had to go just, um, so yes, if you're in crowds and you've been fully vaccinated, it is still important to wear a mask. Um, that is an, a CDC recommendation. I just want to clarify that question. You can go maskless if you know you're around other vaccinated people um, or outside or going to be really distanced from other other people. And then the variants, again, it depends. Like the B117 seems to be protected um, once you've had the vaccine. However, the B1351 is, seems to have some resistance to the vaccine. So in until we kind of see how this big surge is going to play out with these variants, I would still recommend caution, you know, wear that mask and um, try not to travel, keep ourselves safe. We've, I think really looking into the next couple of months is when we're going to know how this is all going to play out. And if once we get past through this big surge, a lot of epidemiologists, I mean, this is their livelihood to study how pandemics 
the course of pandemics and looking at all the information are saying that we will likely be on the kind of down, the true downward slope, not the false peaks of, you know, all these kind of, are we there? Are we at the top? Are we going down now? And now we're going back up, but to really kind of be on the backside of the pandemic after the summer. So to answer that question, continue wearing masks when you're in crowded areas. And yes, we need to kind of stay cautious until we get through um, how, see to see how these variants play out. Right. Which is why we keep hearing from the CDC and Dr. Fauci about how critical the next month is that people yes. really need to just kind of keep doing what one, they're doing. Exactly. One to two months. And, and we'll for sure see in a month, like what part of the slope we're on. Uh, I have some close friends who are encouraging people to follow Idaho Dr. Ryan Cole's warning that the COVID-19 vaccine is not safe or adequately tested and that our feds are cooperating with pharmaceuticals in endangering our people. He is saying don't take the vaccine but take a drug instead called ivermectin which is used to kill parasites in horses. Dr. Cole founded Cole Diagnostics in Garden City, Idaho. This is a conversation being urged here in Kodiak. What's your opinion on? That is an excellent question. And I'm really glad that that question came up. Um, I think it is important to hear kind of what the different information is out there and be able to speak specifically to it. So as far as the, the vaccine itself, the safety and efficacy profiles have been incredible and uh, you know the experts have and really skeptical experts i mean dr Olsenholm initially was saying if you know the vaccine looks unsafe i will not promote it because first and foremost i care about my family and friends and i want them to be safe and so um and that's true for all of us healthcare providers there is not a healthcare provider that i know that would promote something that is potentially dangerous the other part of you know being kind of in a conspiracy theory with the with the federal government, there are so many checks and balances. I mean, if you look at how the government functions in general, it's not that organized to be. You know, it's not that clean. Not everybody is going to kind of buy into a same conspiracy theory about you know making a vaccine that is going to harm people for in whatever way, whether it's a microchip or whether it's like intentionally, you know, trying to cause illness and, and disease in the population. And I mean, if you look at there's Israeli doctors, conservative, um, you know, epidemiologists and doctors who have really looked into the conspiracy theories about this. And, and there's a lot of good information that counters that. But also, you have to, I think, step back and take a look at this doctor. He has cold diagnostic testing. He is, I mean, I don't know exactly what his motivation and intentions are, but um, not, unfortunately, not everybody, like Dr. Jones did a great job of talking about this last week. A lot of doctors are saying, don't take the vaccine, take my, take my prescriptions and my medications. And there's a business aspect to it. So I think, you know, just kind of looking, being aware that unfortunately not everybody does have the best of intentions, but as far as like federal government conspiracy, there's just too many checks and balances in the system. There's no way that every doctor would, everybody's in this same conspiracy theory together and promoting, you know, the vaccine that way. And also look globally. Um, if it's a conspiracy theory for America, just step back and look at the rest of the world. The whole, entire world is going through this right now and also taking vaccines. It's, it's not a federal government program that is 
limited to the United States. And we had talked about ivermectin a couple of months ago when yes. in, in third world countries where vaccine wasn't available and how um, it was an alternative, but it wasn't a cure or curative like the vaccine would be. That's exactly right. So a lot of studies have been done. Dr. Zink actually addressed this a couple of weeks ago. And um, a lot of the studies were stopped early because there was actually harm. There wasn't any benefit being shown from the ivermectin um, treatment arm of the study, the patients that were being treated with it. And there was actually some side effects and harm. So the studies um, haven't panned out when they're really kind of done in that um, double blinded where one person's getting a placebo, one person's getting the actual treatment and the doctors don't know who's getting what. So there's, you know, no um, potential bias introduced into the study. So really when the ivermectin um, is kind of panning out to look a lot like the um, hydrochloroquine. Hydrochlo yes, exactly. Um, and also even azithromycin. You know, there's been a lot of medications that we've looked at saying, hey, maybe this, the, maybe hydro, hydroxychloroquine will work or um, this other medication will work. But when we actually study, it doesn't pan out. So I think ivermectin's unfortunately kind of in that realm and there's still doctors promoting it based on information that is was early on like hope you know hopefully this looks like it's going to be promising but if um pay attention to the new studies that have been done too because um, yeah it's not panning out and it might be dangerous this is a pretty meaty question so you know i i'm i think uh, with dr mortensen having to leave um, maybe we can follow up with conspiracy theories as a, a startup next week and uh, talk about th that one in addition to some of the other ones that are around there and and kind of headbutt them straight on. Uh, I have a, another follow-up comment from a listener. I believe the CDC data indicates number of cases with blood clots doesn't co correlate with the vaccine. Is it actually a higher higher in the population as a whole? The number of blood clots is higher in the population. Yeah, number of indicates the number of cases with blood clots doesn't correlate with the vaccine. That is correct. So um, the vaccine. So there's always you know if you look at the population in general and look at the number of blood clots expected in that population at baseline um, this, and then compare that to how many people had blood clots in that same kind of population, you know, whatever the parameters are that you've defined where you're looking at the numbers. Um, the, the AstraZeneca vaccine has not panned out to prove, to show that there's a higher number of blood clots in the vaccine. Is that does that answer what that is that how you understand that question as well or did i misinterpret um, it um i'm not quite sure um i'm not quite sure if that it's asking whether or not the this is a normal subset of the regular pot, amount of blood clots that you would expect in the population or that there you we're seeing a somewhat significant increase you know, are, are people going to, uh, um, in other words, does the vaccine cause the blood clot or do the blood clots just sort of appear because they get tested um, afterwards? 
I don't know. And with the new studies that came out just that are coming out right today, I believe, um, in regards to blood clots and, and, and the AstraZeneca vaccine, I don't know if we know the answer to that yet. I mean, I think they pull back the trials and because they're still concerned about it. They're still saying uh, we, the risk-benefit analysis shows you should still take the vaccine regardless. And, and I'm not sure if that Im sort of implies that then the blood clots are just a subset or are we seeing an increase? I don't know. Yeah, that that is true. It is still being investigated to really see if there's a link and, and definitely correlation is one thing. Cause and effect is another thing. So, um, but yeah, it is being investigated and they, and they have, the other really important part of this too is public confidence in vaccines. So part of the, I think they're erring on the side of caution and pulling back a lot of this just to make sure that um, people see that nobody wants to give somebody something that's going to harm them. The first, the first kind of, you know, principle of medicine is do no harm. And I, and that is really what is guiding, I think, a lot of this investigation. And it should be. That's how it should be. Okay. I'm going to, we're going to close here with this. One, another comment question from a listener. One, they want to thank you and the other doctors for uh, participating in this and coming on every week and, and sharing your knowledge about this and let people know what, uh, what the, the real information is. Uh, are there any, this is uh, maybe a recap of something we talked about earlier in the show. Are there any documented variant cases in Kodiak yet? Is there any movement to take preemptive measures with the variants? Seems like things are relaxing too much. Yeah, those are great questions. Um, yeah, like we talked about, we don't know if there's variants from Kodiak. I'm going to look into that this week. Um, see if I can find some answers. And then the, I agree, I mean, we are in the intermediate risk zone. And I think that means, you know, we, there are restrictions that need to be put in place. And um, before it's too, before we kind of get into the higher risk zone and really see that surge in our community. Um, I think the emergency operations center is likely having those conversations right now. And, and we'll see what um, kind of decides <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think we should, and everybody can take this on themselves, you know, continue to wear that mask, wash your hands and physically distance, especially from people that haven't been vaccinated yet. And to protect our, protect our kids is kind of a big part of it right now. So is there anything more that we can do preventatively though, even if we have been vaccinated? I mean, there are, is still a question of whether or not the the B117 or the B351 is going to be able to uh, make a bad deposit on us if we've been vaccinated already. Is yeah, I would, I would say avoid travel still. Um, I canceled out a trip. I know I saw a few people. Aaron Ellsworth always posts this really great kind of summary data on Friends of Kodiak. And I know I saw a comment on there that someone else had canceled the trip because of the information that we're in the intermediate risk zone and Anchorage is in the critical risk zone. So prevention is the same. It's the, it's the same that has been throughout this whole pandemic. The vaccine obviously is here now, but the other things, masks, socially distance, wash your hands. And really keep, um, we had great conversations at 4-H regarding crab fest. And there is a lot of concern in our community about wanting to keep each other safe and the hesitance of really gathering and, and kind of just 
coming back to opening up too fast and, and gathering together. So it, it is encouraging to see our community really still um, is taking this seriously. And I think uh, encourage people continue to do that until we're through this next surge out of, we're not out of the woods yet. All right. Well, Dr. Shanna, thank you again for another uh, splendid conversation this week. I, uh, we're going to jump right in next week and then talk about those uh, <coughs> conspiracy theories to start things off with and probably come up with some other things to talk about in the next week. It never seems, um, it doesn't seem like we ever run out of topics. Yeah. Yeah, the WHO did an investigation into the origins of the virus as well. Um, that's another big kind of Bennett conspiracy theory that I think would be good to talk about, the results of that report. Okay. So tune in next week, same time. Right. Thank you so much. All right. You have a great week. You too. All right. Bye. Thanks for your time. <laughs>